Good morning. It's good to see you. If you're here in person, welcome you and also welcome those who are joining us online at home and those in the overflow room. Uh, Even though we're in all these different geographical places, we are gathered as the people of God right now uh, to worship together. And that is what we've gathered to do. Everything that we do when we gather together as his people from the fellowship, the, the shaking hands, the saying hello, the fist bump, the, all the little exchanges we, we, we exchange relationally is part of our worship. That fellowship is part of our worship. The songs that we sing is part of our worship. The prayers that we pray or that we're led in, that's part of our worship. And as we open God's word together, that's part of our worship. This is the part of, the, of worship where we're no longer speaking to God, declaring to God, but now we're saying, God, you speak to us. And as we open his word together to John chapter eight, that's what we're anticipating this morning, that God would speak to each one of us here today. If you're visiting with us, uh, especially glad to have you. Um, This last Sunday had somebody come up and say, hey, I want to introduce myself to you. We just moved here from California. We've been watching online and we just moved here. And so now we get to come be a part of the services in person. That's so cool because the folks that are online, we don't know who you are. We just know how many families are watching, but we don't know who you are. And so again, if you're watching online, would you let us know that? And and even like, let us know if there are things that, that you need that we could help with as a church because we are one church, one body gathered together, not only to worship God, but to hear from him today. And our prayer is that he would speak, regardless of where you are, as we open his word, that he would speak to you today. So if you're visiting with us, again, we are in the Gospel of John. We've made it to chapter 8. We're going through the Gospel of John, verse by verse. And, uh, and so we're going to make it all the way to, I think, the end of chapter 12 this year. So then we'll be starting somewhere at the end of chapter 12, 13 next year. It's going to take us a while to get through it. But here's the scene uh, as it is today. So what we're going to see is we're going to step into a scene where Jesus is once again teaching in the temple. The day before is where he was teaching at the temple at the last day of the feast. The Pharisees, these, these teachers of the law, have dispatched so they dispatch soldiers to come and to arrest Jesus in the temple. They hear him speaking. They're overwhelmed. And so they defy orders and go back empty-handed, and they get reprimanded. Well, then the beginning of chapter 8, the very next day is where we find these same Pharisees. They set a trap for Jesus. They go find a woman who they evidently knew was committing an act of adultery, drag her out of that uh, scene to the feet of Jesus, out in public, humiliate her, and then try to get Jesus to to mess up in in, in his adherence to the law of God. And, And he doesn't. Instead, he says, I'll tell you what, you're right. The law demands that we put her to death. So whoever doesn't have any sin in his life, you get to throw the first stone. The Pharisees, the teachers of the law, drop their stone and go home. Jesus says to her, I don't condemn you, which is interesting. I forgive you of your sins. Now go and sin no more. So later on that day, Jesus is back in the temple. So these same Pharisees that have dispatched soldiers, that have set this trap, they're now coming back to hear Jesus teach in the temple. And as he teaches, they're going to begin to enter into a dialogue uh, between Jesus and themselves. And so that's the scene as we have it today. Starting again in verse 12, which is the verse that Ken read, we read, And Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, when we we hear this word light used as a metaphor in the Bible, um, it is primarily communicating 
one of three things, if not all three things, which we'll get to that in a minute, but three ideas are being communicated. One is the idea of God lighting up a way or a path for us to live. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, right? So the idea that God's word, his counsel in our lives is like a a light shining. So like, I know where to step. I know which way to go. I can follow. I may not be able to know what the end result is, but step by step, if I'm right, reading God's word, it will shine like this light, illuminating the pathway that I'm to walk. Well, another idea of, of light is the idea that, that light represents truth. So deceit, lying, fallacy, that's darkness. That's where things hide. But when truth is spoken, it shines like a light and exposes sin, right? So think about being asleep uh, in a dark room and somebody walks in and flips the light on, okay? It, it's not, it's not um, welcome at first, right? It's hard on the eyes, it hurts. It's like, no, turn it off. And that, in the same way, the truth of God shines like a light into our hearts. So not just the pathway showing me where to go, but it illuminates lies and deceit and sin in my own heart and it doesn't feel good at first so the light then is in some ways kind of a a judgment a a way to expose things but then also in the gospel of john chapter one we read that that jesus is the light of the world and that he is also the in that light is the life of men so that life like life from god is like a light and it shines in us And then we share that life with others as we shine the light out into the world. So here's the thing, though. I don't think that these things are mutually exclusive. I think they're all interconnected and interdependent on one another. So when Jesus says, I am the light of the world, I think he means all things. I think in in a way, it's like Jesus saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. All wrapped up in this idea of being light of the world. Now, as he makes this announcement there in the temple, he follows it with something that's interesting. He says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And what's interesting is that this is the first time that Jesus has addressed a public crowd, and and instead of saying, believe in me, he's invited them to follow him. Like the only time this has happened in the Gospel of John is when he approaches Philip early on in chapter one and invites him to follow him as one of his disciples. But like now in the temple, addressing a crowd, Jesus transitions from believe in me, which he's been using, right? For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, but whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. That's in the gospel of John. But now here in chapter eight, Jesus takes it a step further and uses the word follow. I think that's interesting because I think that helps us understand what he means when he says believe, right? Because we have a very cheap idea of belief and faith in our culture today. Right, we say faith, what do we mean? Just summon up some, summon up some optimism and just believe it's gonna happen and, and make it happen and, or the idea of a good luck charm or a superstition and, and what Jesus means by belief is like so much deeper than that. It's the kind of belief and faith that when you have it in someone, it will invoke actions. It will invoke a level of trust, a level of, of, of like following and obedience so that we don't just walk into church and go, oh yeah, I believe in Jesus, high five all of our Christian buddies, and then go back into the world and live how we want. No, Jesus says, believing in me, right, on this level means that you'll actually high five all your buddies, and when you walk out of here, you'll follow me out into the world. Like this daily relationship with Christ. So he said, he, this is his teaching. 
Now what follows from here is now a dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees. So no longer are they sending the guards in their place. They're now going to confront and address Jesus toe to toe. Okay? And so as Jesus walks through his response, we're going to get a better understanding of what it means that he is the light of the world. And so we'll pick this up in verse 13. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true for I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Now, that's gonna be really helpful in understanding the entirety of what we're talking about today. So when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees, in his mind, he's thinking about where he came from and where he's going to, right? It's on his mind. He knows that before he was born into the world, fully God and fully man, before that he was seated on the throne, sovereign Lord of the universe. And he steps down from that to be born of a virgin, to walk among us 33 years or so, fully God yet fully man, to the cross, dies in our place, resurrects, and then he ascends back where? back to his rightful place on the throne. So that's where he's come from, and that's where he's going to. So he has that in his mind as he's talking with the Pharisees. Now what they're doing is they're using legal jargon. Remember, these are teachers of the law. So they're talking about testimony and witnesses here with Jesus. And so they're, they're confronting him, and they're saying, your, your testimony can't be true, Jesus. We can't trust your testimony because there's nobody here, here to bear witness for you. See, like in a legal court of law at this time, you couldn't bear witness for yourself. Your own alibi wasn't enough. Somebody else had to be willing to put their neck on the line for you to step up and to be your witness, your character witness. And so they're saying, well, Jesus, where's your witness? This would not fly in a court of law and you're bearing testimony about yourself. Jesus says, my testimony is true. Now, going forward in verse 15, he says this. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. So he is continuing that legal mindset here in this conversation. He's thinking about testimonies and witnesses and judges. And he says says to them, you judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Now, we'll stop right here because, first of all, let's talk about what he means by you judge according to the flesh. He's speaking to these Pharisees, these teachers of the law, who know the law of God really well. What he is saying, on one hand, is you are judging people. You're making judgment calls against other human beings using the eight pounds of biological mush between your ears, calling it wisdom, right? Calling it wise, calling it true, and you're you're casting judgment on somebody else. But not only that, it's not just about the biological limitations of the human body. Your moral compass is off. So you're making these judgments with limited wisdom, limited perspective, and your motives are askew. You're judging out of your flesh. But then he follows that up with the phrase that gets hijacked and misunderstood in the culture when he says, I judge no one. I don't know if you've heard this before, but people will take those words from Jesus, pull it out of context, and say, see, Jesus doesn't judge anyone. Why are you judging people? Jesus didn't come to call out sin. He just came to love everybody and give everybody a big spiritual hug, and everything will be good, and see, Jesus doesn't judge. Why do you judge? And what we forget is the context, what Jesus is saying. 
And it's absolutely true. In this moment, he has not come to the earth to judge. He hasn't. He said, right, to the woman, I have not come to condemn you. John chapter three, I have not come to the world to condemn the world. Why? Because the world's already condemned. The world's already guilty. So when Jesus steps down from his throne to take on flesh, it's like the judge of the courtroom. Have you been into a courtroom? These are intimidating places, aren't they? I don't know, I've just heard. But (laughs) judges on the stand, elevated in the room, got on a robe and a big hammer, right? It's intimidating, right? If you're a defendant, you're on the floor and you're just like at his mercy. Is he gonna let me talk and how long? And right, at any moment he could say, order, contempt, get him out of here. Like ultimate authority in the room, right? This is Jesus in the universe. And what he's saying is, listen, I have willingly for a moment stepped down from this role. I've, taken, I've stepped up, I've set the gavel down, I've taken off the judge's role, I've put on flesh. Now I look like you, like a defendant here on the floor of the courtroom. And so when he says, I have not come to judge, he's talking about that temporary moment between his birth and his ascension where he has stepped down into our world to rescue us, not to condemn us. But in the big picture of what God is doing in the universe, he's still the judge. There's still a judgment day coming on which the judge will put his robe back on, step back up onto the throne with his gavel, and he will judge the world. The book of Revelation makes this abundantly clear. Abundantly clear. Just a few examples. Revelation chapter 6. In this scene of Revelation, all the martyrs, those who have been put to death for their faith in Jesus, they're going to cry out this prayer to Jesus. Listen to what they pray. This is um, when the fifth seal is open. So Revelation 6, 9, when he, that's Jesus, opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witnesses they had borne. Here's what they pray. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. You catch that? So those who have been persecuted and put to death because of their faith in Jesus, they're praying, how long, Jesus, before you take your rightful place back on the throne and cast judgment? Judge the world. Avenge our blood. And later on, Revelation chapter 11, this is that the seventh um, angel blowing the trumpet Listen to this, verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You hear that declaration of his reign and his rule and his authority? It's about Jesus. And then the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God, they fell on their faces to worship God. So these little bitty thrones, what are they doing? They're falling on their face. There's only room for one judge here on his throne. And the elders are saying, it's not us, it's him. They fall on their faces and worship. Verse 17 saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to what? Reign, rule. Listen to this. The nations raged, but your wrath came and the time of the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. 
the time has come. Take your rightful place. The 24 elders are like, we don't need to be on the throne. We don't need to be the ones in the judgment seat. We're gonna fall on our face. Jesus, you get up on your seat. You put on your rule. You grab your gavel. You be the judge. You're the only one who will judge according to, listen, righteousness. Not just wisdom, but also right motives. Revelation 19, one of my favorite chapters in the whole book of Revelation. This description of the return of Christ. Okay, so Jesus says, hey, you guys don't know where I've come from. You don't know where I'm going to, speaking of his ascension. But also in his mind is this idea, listen, I am coming back. You want a description of how Jesus comes back? Listen to this, and I want you to think about your view of Jesus. Maybe your Jesus is gentle and meek and kind, and he has the ability to be all those things. Compassionate, warm, loving, forgiving, and graceful. But listen, the real Jesus, he is no spiritual weakling. The fact that he is killed by men is not because he's weak. Listen to a description of your Savior at his return. Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Pause. I don't know what it takes to be one of the ones who gets selected on, to ride one of the white horses. I want to be there. I don't know, but go ahead and practice your riding skills now so that when you get there, and he says, get on a horse, you're like, no problem. I want to be a part of this. Sorry, go ahead. So, verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to do what? Strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written. Here's what it is, King of kings and Lord of lords. Whoo! That is an incredibly powerful view of Jesus, isn't it? So when he says, guys, I've not come to judge, he's not talking about eternally. There is a time where he is coming, right, to judge. He actually says it himself in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's Jesus' words himself. Now, here comes the good news. What Jesus is saying here with the Pharisees is, I am the judge who sits on the throne. But what I have done is I have stood up, I have taken off my robe, I have set down my gavel, and for a moment I have stepped into your world. Fully God, fully man, And what he does is he takes a seat next to you, the defendant, and puts his arm around you and says, quit listening to your legal counsel over there. So before your trial ever begins, Jesus comes and he says, listen, I just need to tell you something. You're already guilty. Before this trial begins, I just want you to know you're already guilty. Now here's the good news. I'm going to sentence you. But before I go back to my, my rightful place on the throne, I'm going to take your sentence. That's good news. 
That's Jesus. That's your Savior. Ruler and reigner of the, of, of the universe is saying to you, listen, I have temporarily set that aside that I might come be a humble, suffering servant to just, just, to, just to slide in next to you there in the courtroom and just whisper in your ear, hey, you're guilty already. Before you even try to plead your case, before you try to mislead anybody in this room, just let me already know it. Before you think about, am I gonna plead uh, not guilty or no contest? Jesus said, listen, you're already guilty, okay? But here's what I want you to do. I want you to trust me. Put your life in my hands. I want you to plead guilty. Guilty is charged. Don't make any excuses. Don't blame it on anybody else. This is what confession and repentance is. I want you to declare before the courtroom, I'm guilty. And then put your life in my hands, and here's what's gonna happen. I'm gonna carry out your sentence for you. That's what, that's what the cross is about. Jesus is carrying out our sentence. And he's saying, listen, I'm the judge, just trust me. And so when he says here with the Pharisees, I come to judge no one, look at what he says next, verse 15. You judge according to flesh, I judge no one, verse 16. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is what? True. That's the idea of like permanent, not shifting, doesn't change. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, so Jesus is talking again to them from a legal perspective, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. So in the, in the Gospel of John, like the first six chapters is all about the witnesses who bear testimony about Jesus. And the first witness is John the Baptist, right? He bears witness that Jesus is the Messiah. Then the second witness are the signs and miracles, right? And Jesus is fulfilling prophecy there. And then the third witness is actually the word of God. All these amazing prophecies about the Messiah who is to come. And so Jesus says, through all these three witnesses, my father is bearing testimony for me. And so now here, even in a legal situation, Jesus says, actually, I do have a character witness. It's my father. And he's the one who gave you the law that you're actually questioning me about right now. This law that bears testimony about me, I actually do have a witness. It is my father. In verse 19, they, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Obviously, they don't get what he's saying, right? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now you may have noticed over the last three weeks that theme of his hour has not yet come. So just briefly, what, what do we believe that Jesus means there? He's looking forward to his last few weeks here on earth, beginning with his triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. Because remember, the beginning of chapter 7, his brothers are like, hey, come with us to Jerusalem. Enter into Jerusalem as the Messiah. And he said, no, guys, I can't go. Why? Because my hour has not yet come. There's going to come a day where I enter Jerusalem that way, and it's going to start this domino effect of events, which will include me cleansing the temple, 
It will include me uh, sitting down and having uh, communion with the disciples on Thursday night. And then right after that, Judas is going to betray me. And then I'm going to go out in the garden. I'm going to pray. And I'm just going to weep over, over you. I'm going to weep over your sins. And then Judas is going to bring the soldiers back into the garden. They're going to arrest me. They're going to take me to trial. They're going to accuse me of things I didn't do. And then they're going to sentence me to death. My hour has not yet come. Beyond that, he's, he knows he's going to be buried in a tomb. He's going to resurrect on the third day. Then he's going to pull his disciples aside and say, all right, guys, I'm getting ready to leave, but here's your marching orders. Go make disciples of the nations. And then Acts 1 begins with what? His ascension back into heaven. So when Jesus said, you don't know where I come from. You don't know where I'm going. My hour has not yet come. Like He's looking at these events. My hour has not yet come. But more importantly, what I want you to see is, is, this, is the end of verse 19. See, the problem for the Pharisees wasn't that they didn't know the law or the legal system. Too many people today know how to navigate church. Church service, I know when to stand, I know when to sit down. I know when to close my eyes and pray. I know when to go get communion. I know how to do all the things that we're supposed to do, the law. I even know how to go to community group how to, how to speak at the right time and how to not speak at other times so I don't get on anybody's nerves and so I just participate on just a level that everybody's comfortable with. I know how to do that. I know how to play the church game. These guys knew the church game. The problem wasn't that they didn't know how to play church. Look at the problem. The problem was what? You know neither me nor my father. These guys have been playing church for centuries and completely missed who church was about. They were practicing this law for centuries, but had lost sight of the giver of the law, right? The one who the law leads us to, which is God himself. And Jesus says, hey, the problem isn't that you don't know your Bible. The problem is you don't know who the Bible's about. You don't know God. And so we look at what Jesus meant when he said, hey, I am the light of the world. Anybody who follows me does not walk in darkness, but has the light of life. What he's saying to you, Christ follower, is more than just this superstitious, optimistic faith, but that you would truly believe in Jesus in a way where you would trust him, you would obey him, you would follow him, and listen, come to know him. This is so important. I became a Christian at the age of 15 at a youth summer camp. I met the real Jesus, but I didn't fully know him. I was introduced to a Jesus who died for my sins to forgive me and who loves me. But that's not all of who Jesus is. And the more I grow as a Christian, the more I read the word of God, the more he speaks to me through his word, the, the more accurate view I have of Jesus, right? He is a humble servant. He is a judge who takes off his robe and steps down to my level to die in my place to take my sentence. But there is also a day where he will do what? He will step back on his rightful place to judge the world. That's my savior. That's your savior. And so I just wonder how many of us here today, it's not that you don't know how to play church, it's not that you don't even know where all the books of the Bible are, maybe you know all that stuff, but you've lost sight of who it's about. This is just supposed to be a testimony, a witness, to point you to a person, Jesus. That's what this is. And if you don't find Jesus through the word, you're just like the Pharisees, experts in the law, but you don't know him. Listen, Christ's follower, that's why we talk about a relationship. Christ has invited you, saved you into a relationship with him. And every day you walk with him, your view of him becomes more and more accurate. 
Your false ideas of Jesus get dropped and left behind, and, and who Jesus really is becomes more and more clear to you. So I don't know where you are here today. I really don't. Some of you here today have never taken that step of faith to get to know Christ. So today, Christ is saying, listen, I'm come to, coming to you as a humble servant. You're guilty, but I'm willing to take your place in that death sentence. Will you trust in me? Will you put your life in my hands? If that's you and you've never done that, you've never come to Christ and said, listen, I trust you with the verdict of my life. I trust you. My life is in your hands. I'm guilty. Trust you. That's what it means to be saved, to come to Christ and say, I trust you. I believe you. My life is in your hands. I'm guilty. Will you forgive me? And the promise of God is that if you will confess your sins to him, he is faithful and just to do what? Forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So if that's you, I'm gonna pray that you'd make that decision. Now I need to talk to the church folks in the room, the experienced Christians in the room, the experienced churchgoers in the room like myself. How many of us are truly saved, but over time we've lost sight of who this book is about? How many of us have embraced or taken hold of a false idea of who Jesus is so that when you hear the idea that he is a ruling and reigning judge and he's coming back on a white horse, it completely shocks you. That is your savior. That's who he is. So maybe for you, you are a Christian, but today would be a day to recapture the true Jesus of the Bible. Not the one that the world is trying to sell to you, not the one that you made up in your mind, but the real Jesus of the Bible. Because why? What's the problem? You neither know me nor my Father. So whether it's the, for the first time or the thousandth time, would you take a step of faith to get to know Jesus today? To know him even better than you did but when you walked in here? And maybe for you it's the first time. If that's you, um, when we get ready to sing in a minute, our worship team is gonna come up. They're gonna sing. We'll have a pastor or two down here. We would love to pray with you about anything going on, but especially if you're wanting to take that step of faith to become a Christian today. The words of the song that we're about to sing, the chorus goes like this. Love came down to rescue me. Love came down to set me free. Can we think about the Jesus of John 8 when we sing that? That word love is, is, is describing the judge who lovingly comes down to rescue us and to set us free. He hasn't come to put shackles on us. We're already shackled. He's coming to set you free. Love came down to rescue me. Love came down to set me free. I am yours. That we might make that declaration together as his people. I'm gonna pray now and worship team, if you guys will come up and we'll get ready to respond. Lord Jesus, thank you for opening our eyes this morning to who you really are. We confess that the view we have of you, the idea that we have of you in our minds, it is limited, it is partial, it is not full. Oftentimes we think of you, Jesus, in unbiblical ways. So I thank you that just like with the Pharisees this morning, you're opening our eyes to see you as you are. Yes, you are the ruling and reigning judge of the universe, but you love us so much that you came down from your throne to walk among us, to die in our place, to resurrect from the dead, that by believing in you, trusting in you, following you, we might have new life. You truly are the light of the world. 
So draw us now to the light of the world as we respond. Pray your Holy Spirit would move and speak and convict right now as we prepare our hearts to respond. Lord Jesus, we pray all this in your powerful, sovereign name. Amen.